Hello, and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to learn about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder and CEO of Stitch. You can find out more about me and hear about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right, today on the show, we have John Rouser, data scientist at Snapchat and previously at Pinterest and Amazon. John tells us how statistics would be better taught through computer science than math, how he optimized the design of AWS data centers using data analytics, and what it means to be a ferologist. And here's our conversation. Welcome to another episode of Statistically Interesting. I have uh, a really great guest here today. Uh, Guest, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm John Rouser, and I'm a data scientist and software engineer, uh, and right now I work at Snapchat. Excellent. And uh, so obviously Snapchat is a very well-known company. Data science uh, is something that, you know, we talk about a lot on this podcast. Uh, When you're talking to folks that aren't in our industry, uh, how do you explain to them what you do? Usually the way I describe my job to people who aren't in the industry is I say that I'm an applied mathematician. Um, that, that, that I use math to help people think about how to solve problems in the real world. Um, that resonates with people a lot better, I think, than the, the phrase data scientist. Um, like only people in our industry know what that is. Uh, and if someone said, you know, what's an example of a problem that, that you solve with math? Uh, do you have like a stock answer for this is a, this is a thing that I've done? Hmm. I guess I don't have a stock answer. Uh, I mean, my generic answer is the thing I said just a second ago, so I'm repeating myself, but um, that I help people think with data. I help people solve problems uh, with data. Um, I don't know. And that can take uh, any one of a jillion different forms, right? Um, I mean, I guess the the one that's like uh, on my mind right now is is like A/B testing, like trying to use experimentation um, to understand how to improve the service for users. Absolutely, uh, and I think that's probably when when I think about you know the, the canonical example for how businesses use analytics or data science. That that certainly uh, is right up there. Um, so I know you haven't been at, at Snapchat for, for too long. Could you, you spend a little bit of time talking about just like the, the arc of your career, where, where you were before and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Um, usually I do this in, in uh, reverse chronological order. So before I was at, at Snapchat, I've only been at Snapchat for six months now. Um, I was at Pinterest um, in the Bay Area for about three years. Uh, before Pinterest, I was at Amazon for eight years over a 10-year span. Um, so uh, so I, I left Amazon and went to go work for a little startup called uh, Faircast that predicted airfares. Um, that company got bought by Microsoft and became uh, Bing Travel. Um, which uh, and I don't actually think that product exists anymore. Like the, there were these little arrows you'd, you'd search for a. Uh, uh, airfare, and it would tell you if the price was going to go up or down in the next uh, 14 or 21 days. Um, so sadly, that doesn't exist uh, as far as I know. Um, before that, I worked at a little uh, a little startup that sold personalization software during the dot-com boom called Net Perceptions. Um, we were one of the the, we were founded by the, the group lens, uh, or the, the people who worked at the group lens research group in, um, at the University of Minnesota. 
Um, so they founded this personalization software company. Uh, and before that, I worked for a hedge fund uh, for five years. Very cool. Yeah, it's a bunch of different uh, exciting places. Uh, Faircast, I think, might be an interesting place to start uh, just because it was a product that I used and I thought it was really great. And uh, I was uh, a little bummed when it got bought because I was worried it was going to go away. And it seems like seems like it has. Although, uh, have you seen uh, what Google has been doing lately with their flight search? And uh, they're doing some predictions, although it might just be they've introduced things that Faircast did 10 years ago. Have you looked at that at all? I haven't seen their predictions. There's um, I noticed on Kayak, there's something that is very, very similar to what Faircast used to do. Um, I don't I don't know where that technology came from, if they bought it or licensed Faircaster. I, I have no idea. Um, uh, so, so it does kind of, there's something like Faircast still exists in the world. The stuff I've seen Google do that's really quite remarkable is... Um, is their pricing, right? You can search for, uh, like I wanna fly from Seattle to Boston, uh, and they'll give you a calendar of departure and return dates, and they'll give you pricing um, that's uh, that's really, really fast and accurate. Um, and I assume that that's coming out of the, they, they, bought, a, they bought a company called ITA, I, I, if I'm remembering that correctly, um, uh, out of Cambridge that did um, real-time pricing. And th- those people were very clever. They, they, they did a good job at what they were doing. And so I assume that that's uh, where that acquisition has gone to. And this is, I'm sure, a naive question, but uh, why is that hard? Like, why is it hard to give uh, real-time or very fast pricing on, on travel data? Uh, I think, that, well, uh, that's complicated. Uh, and now I'm dredging up like uh, eight-year-old memory. Um, so there's two parts to airfares. Um, so one is the fares that are filed with this quasi-governmental agency, the name of which I can't remember. I want to say it's IATA, but I'm not sure if that's right. Um, and so the way that works is is um, the airlines... Uh, they say, I am willing to provide service on this route at this price in this class. Um, and that's the, those, the classes are the letters that sometimes show up on your ticket, like Q or Y or K. Um, and so the airlines file those um, uh, in advance. Um, uh, but what they don't do is they don't make seats available in all those classes all the time. And so the availability problem is this real-time thing where at any moment the airline can say, uh, we have uh, four seats available in Y class for you at this price. Um, but if you ask again a moment later, th- those seats might be gone. And, they, and for whatever reason, the airline can just decide. Um, and so it's the combination of those things of, of finding what are all the possible ways to get from Seattle to Boston and what availability is there in real time. Um, and, uh, and so I think if you're quite clever, you can maybe do some caching of that availability or maybe some prediction around that availability and you can, um, you can get uh, high quality results fast. Uh, that's uh, Faircast never dealt with the pricing problem. We bought our our, our pricing data from uh, from third parties, so we were just in the prediction business. Got it. Okay. Huh. Mm-hmm. And, and so, how much of what you were personally focused on was the prediction element versus the you know sorting or the other aspects that were involved in in that product? Um, I definitely worked on the prediction stuff some, though. 
the, the um, I, I mean, the, the thing I did maybe the most of uh, was actually um, trying to understand patterns of airfare pricing uh, and make those patterns accessible to regular humans. Um, so I would do uh, briefings, uh, I'd write blog posts, uh, and I would do briefings to press uh, that were market specific. So I'd like talk to people uh, in Kansas City about airfares in and out of Kansas City uh, for Thanksgiving and what things are looking like. And then that would get turned into um, newspaper articles usually. Uh, so that was that was a lot of what I did was this um, that kind of stuff visualizing the fare stream uh, or just trying to understand in aggregate where are things going um, and also like trying to give people uh, really basic advice about how to purchase airfare. You're almost like being a like an evangelist for using data to uh, to buy airline tickets. Yeah, exactly. The the our PR people branded me a fareologist. Uh, <sighs> I, don't, I, I was never super comfortable with that, but I'm like, okay, fine, fairologist. I like that title. I may, uh, I may refer to you that way yeah, going forward, Mr. Fairologist. Uh, and, and so I know you mentioned that uh, you were at Amazon, you left to go to Faircast, and then you came back to Amazon. Yeah. What motivated you to, to leave and come back? Boy, it's a slightly uncomfortable uh, question, just because my uh, my answer is is a little bit irrational. So the deal is, I kind of don't like Microsoft. Um, <laughs> so Microsoft acquired Faircast, um, and uh, and I had no particular desire uh, to work for Microsoft. I mean, part of it is just the commute. I live in Seattle, and Microsoft is across um, Lake Washington, and so the commute would have been uh, unpleasant. Um, and, and it's not like I don't like Microsoft. Like, I think they're a fine company. Like, but what I remember is Microsoft's role in um, uh, really trashing open source uh, way back in the day. Uh, and, and I've sort of always held that against Microsoft as an organization. Like, I think open source is really great. It's changed my life. Um, it's, it's made my industry fantastically better. And so um, the the way that, that Microsoft aggressively um, tried to do damage to open source historically has left a really bad taste in my mouth. Um, they're doing better now, I'll say. I mean, I think Sacha's um, uh, really uh, turned things around in a substantial way with regard to their stance on open source, among many other things. Like, I think Sacha has been quite an improvement. Yeah, I think it has been remarkable how, how much their attitude has shifted or at least looking in from the outside and the number of products that they offer like you can buy you know linux and mysql on the azure cloud now um so they're they're very much seems like a big about face um hmm, interesting yeah so did you think if, if you were uh if you were let's say you were at faircast today and microsoft had bought them do you think you would potentially be sticking around now or do you think that probably would would be unchanged uh i don't know it's a good question uh, I, um, it's hard to say. I'd certainly be more inclined now uh, than I was uh, whatever it was eight years ago. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the commute would still be a, a killer. <laughs> I don't want to cross the water. I ride my bike to work right now. So, uh, And then what, what, uh, what led you to your interest in, in going to Pinterest from Amazon? Um, I don't know. I mean, part of it was that a friend of mine had taken a position at Pinterest uh, to be the head of engineering. Um, and 
Uh, I had lived in Seattle for a long time and always been sort of curious about the Bay Area tech scene. And so when this friend of mine took this job, I'm like, well, maybe maybe I should like look around and and consider that. Uh, and so that was that was a lot of it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's, yeah. I mean, just a, a, like a little bit of wanderlust, uh, you know, um, that sort of thing. It turns out my family didn't like San Francisco, so uh, so we moved back to Seattle. We're very happy here. That's great. Uh, and so between you know, social media, server infrastructure retail advertising, airline forecasting, hedge funds. Uh, there's obviously a huge variability, I'm sure, in the projects you were working on, the languages you were coding in, uh, on all different dimensions. Um, when you think about all those different uh, companies, like, is there, is there any analysis you did or research you conducted that where it seemed like there was a really high ratio of economic value to technical sophistication that was required? Like anything where you were just, you know, the 80-20 rule was on overdrive and something relatively simple ended up paying out gangbusters on whatever dimension of paying out you cared about? Yeah, I mean, honestly, most of the things I do are really simple. Uh, Like linear models will get you a very, very long way. Uh, like counting and dividing will get you a tremendously long way. And so I really try hard to, um, uh, to stick with, uh, like technologies that are a decade old and, uh, and like mathematical, uh, ideas that are many decades or centuries old, um, just because they're simple and they tend to work really well. The, the maybe I'll answer your your question in the in the reverse. So the counterexample to that was the was the time at Faircast. Um, there was um, predicting airfares is just really hard. Um, there's very little signal to pull out of the data, and so um, at Faircast we had to use fairly sophisticated machine learning techniques to try to make any progress at all. And for, for what it's worth, I can't claim any credit for that. That was that was work that was done by um, a team of three people before I even started. Um, but uh, but I did help work on that stuff. So I don't know. That's but but most of the time the simple stuff is is where you want to be um, for sure. Uh, are there like in your toolkit? Uh, I know you mentioned you use you know tools and technologies that tend to be a decade old. Like what what would you say are your go to tools? The things that you use most frequently? Um, I mean, for me right now, it's it's R and uh, and what, what people call the tidyverse, right? So um, pe- previously called the Hadleyverse. Hadley just rebranded it. I think he was uncomfortable with. Uh, having his name on these things. Uh, and so at, at uh, JSM or something about two months ago, he's like, no, no, it's called the Tidyverse now. Um, uh, but so I should explain what for people who don't know. So um, so R is a, is a statistical computing uh, language. Probably most of your listeners know that. Um, and then there's this fellow named Hadley Wickham who's written um, a bunch of libraries um, for doing data manipulation and plotting in R, among other things. Uh, and collectively, those things were known as the Hadleyverse. Um, and so those that's uh, that's what I use as much as anything else. Um, I, I, I find that tool set to be um, tremendously expressive and powerful. Um, and so I'd really rather be using that um, than, than anything if I can avoid it. That makes sense. 
uh, I, I know you mentioned some of the ideas you use are many decades old. Uh, and I, uh, I mean, the reason, the way that I originally, uh, the reason I originally reached out to you was after I saw a talk that you did at Data Driven NYC, uh, where you kind of retaught statistics through the lens of computer science, uh, which I blew my mind because of how hard I remember it being to learn the concepts in statistics and how uh, stupid simple it was uh, given your talk. And I'll link to that talk uh, when I um, post the podcast, but I'd love to uh, for you to give the listeners uh, just uh, some of that info that was in that talk, some of those ideas, and, and if there are other ideas as well that you think are in that same same universe. Sure, yeah. The basic thrust of that talk um, was... Well, the, 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 the overt thesis of the talk was that if you can program a computer, um, that gives you superpowers when it comes to learning statistics because um, being able to program allows you to play around with the fundamental ideas of statistics. You can, um, you can create data and replicate data and, uh, and, and watch Things like um, the convergence of a random uh, of the sum of, the, of a, ran, a set of random variables um, to the the Gaussian distribution, like you watch the central limit theorem happen. Um, uh, you, I mean, it's it, it's just it's so useful to be able to express um, the 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 operations of random sampling and summarization in code and then do them over and over and over and over again to see what happens um, then but there's there's another part of that talk um, the, the the subtext of it really is is that I'm railing against um, the the terrible damage that academic statisticians have done to their field it's perhaps unfair uh, but but whatever that's the that's the the, the harsh way to state it um, uh, so what I do in that talk is I is I walk people through um, a t-test as though they were um, like a run-of-the-mill non-expert um, trying to figure out how to do it by reading Wikipedia articles, which is a nightmare. Like if you just go to any random Wikipedia article about statistics, um, the opening sentence will be completely impenetrable, like just utter nonsense. You, you can't make heads nor tails of it. Um, and I think that that's a tragedy uh, because the the ideas of in statistics are so incredibly useful and powerful, and they're really simple um, if you um, if you pare them down um, to their absolute minimum, uh, and so uh, and so it just it drives me crazy that um, that statistics appears to be so complex and opaque. Uh, uh, when in reality it's uh, it's it's really beautiful and small and elegant, um, and so that's that's what the talk is really about: is that um, if you've been put off by statistics uh, because it is made so difficult by the people that try to teach it, um, you should really have another go, um, and you should uh, uh, you should just get, I don't know get better resources or get better teachers uh, or something uh, uh, in, in an effort um, to to try to, to to learn it again in a different way. And putting yourself in the shoes of the you know academic statisticians who have kind of screwed it all up. Uh, why do you think that they've done it? Why are they teaching it the way that they're teaching it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, mathematicians care a lot about rigor, right? Um, uh, and and 
that's super important. Like I can't like academic statisticians are doing the world a great service uh, in the development of theory. Uh, um, but when you're trying to communicate practical ideas um, to students, that rigor gets in the way uh, and it, it doesn't it doesn't help. Um, and another thing that, that, that they're doing, another reason why mathematicians um, uh, communicate in the way they do is, um, is, is that it's really compact. It's really great if you can express some incredibly complex uh, and deep set of ideas um, as, you know, like a, a set of weak convergence theorems or something like that. Well, that, those three words or however many it was, four words mean something to an audience of academic statisticians. And, there, and so you can communicate a huge amount of information um, very, very quickly if you use these really refined concepts. Um, but that is not the way you communicate to students. They don't understand that. They, need, they would need decades of work. Um, to come to that. Like if you go read these Wikipedia articles, you can't understand them without years of effort uh, uh, to, 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 to develop uh, an understanding of just the jargon, if nothing else. Um, and so, I don't know, like they, if, if there are academic statisticians listening, you are fine, fine people. Um, I really, really uh, appreciate the work that you do. Uh, uh, you should just try to communicate to lay people uh, more effectively if you're communicating to lay people at all. If you want to communicate with academics, great, have at it. Like you're doing a fine job. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but regular people need, need access to your ideas too. I think that makes sense. And so if, if you were put in charge of a Statistics 101 class, uh, would you, you know, spend the first uh, week or month doing a you know, quick uh, intro to programming and then uh, teach the concepts through that lens? Or how do you think you'd actually break it down for people? Yeah, absolutely I would. Um, oh, I listened to this really great podcast. I can't remember anything about it. I, uh, uh, I think it might have... Ben, Rod well, forget it. We'll edit this out. I'll, we'll, I'll get you the, uh, I'll get you the the actual podcast link. I think it was maybe Roger Peng talking to uh, someone who teaches statistics at Harvard about the choices um, that he made in that class. Um, and I would do the same thing that that that, that professor did, I, whose name I, yes, completely escapes me. Uh, but what he talked about was. Um, he talked about starting out with programming, so teaching people just the absolute basics of programming. Like here is how, here's like what a variable is. This is what a function is. Here's how to write a loop. Um, and then what he did is he had them uh, use those programming concepts to implement statistical um, techniques. Um, and so his strategy was, we're going to have you practice those basic programming ideas over and over and over again to develop mastery with these, this small set of ideas. But in the process of that, you're getting exposure to all of these, these different statistical ideas. And so that he, he made a very conscious choice about that order. Um, uh, uh, to, to, to teach the ideas in that order uh, and, and um, to use the statistics to um, to really get the the programming ingrained in people, um, rather than the other way around. And I think I'd do it that way. Like that sounds the best to me. Um, though I'd probably start actually not with statistics. I'd do um, maybe what Hadley says, which is visualization. 
Um, uh, Hadley Wickham is a is a big proponent of visualization as a starting place because it's so high bang for the buck, right? Like you can take data and you can make. Um, I mean, a visualization is a statistical model of a sort, right? And so you can make, um, uh, uh, well, statistical models, right? Um, they're just encoded in sort of a weird way. Uh, uh, and, and students, I think, or I find that really enjoyable, and I think probably most people do, um, right? That you can, you can get a picture uh, that's really accessible, uh, and, the, and your brain can pick out aspects of, of the data from that picture, aspects of the model from that picture. That makes total sense. And uh, did you, did you the, the idea for your talk, did that come from either of those two people or was that something you came up independently with and you just came across other people talking about similar ideas? No, I mean, the, the biggest inspiration for that talk was a paper by George Cobb, uh, who's a professor at, I think Mount Holyoke College, if I recall correctly, he wrote this great, this really, really great paper called um, uh, something like the moderns uh, or the, the statistics, the modern statistics class, a Ptolemaic curriculum, I believe is the title of the paper. The word Ptolemaic is in there. So if you Google that, you'll probably find it. Um, and uh, he basically wrote this long screed about how he thinks that the way that people teach statistics is uh, is a fraud, that it's really wrong, um, that uh, that that we should teach statistics through computation, not through um, limiting theorems, um, and that and his argument is the only reason. Uh, well. The reason that theory got developed is it, it was an end run around computational problems. It's we didn't know how to compute the tail probabilities. Uh, and so we developed um, this theory that allowed us to approximate them under certain conditions. Um, uh, but we have these fantastic digital computers now, and there's no reason to not just throw computational horsepower. I mean, that's not no reason. That's that's incorrect. That's an overstatement. Um, but you can get away with just throwing com computational horsepower at uh, at a tremendous number of problems uh, and and come out smelling like a rose, uh, and that that's a much more accessible way to teach statistics. Um, and so so Cobb's paper was really the thing that inspired me. I mean, not least because it gave me permission uh, to, 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 to simulate. Um, uh, I always felt sort of guilty when I would simulate before. I'd think, well, no, I'm, I'm like actually cheating. Like there's some, uh, there's some test I should be using, uh, but I just don't know it. Uh, or there's some, uh, some test that I should be developing from first principles, but I don't have the math chops to do that anymore. Uh, and so I'd simulate, but I'd always feel dirty about the simulating. And Cobb said, no, no, don't, don't feel dirty. It's completely fine. Um, in fact, Fisher himself told you that it was all right to simulate. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, this, is what, this is what we should do um, if we can. So I don't know. Cobb, Cobb was my inspira inspiration. That's great. Yeah, and, and uh, just for, for people listening, uh, I've watched this talk twice. I've shared it with a bunch of people who've also loved it, so uh, I can't, can't recommend it highly enough. Are you shifting gears back to some, some of your... Uh, well, actually, before I do that, uh, are there any other talks that you've given that you think uh, would be particularly interesting or noteworthy for people to, to check out if they like that one? I don't know. I mean, if you, just, if you Google for me on YouTube, I have a playlist. Um, 
that you can look at. Uh, I have, I mean, I gave a, a, a series of talks at uh, Velocity, uh, the O'Reilly Velocity Conference about um, about looking at your data. Those those were aimed at um, uh, Velocity is a conference for people that are involved in. Um, uh, operating large fleets of hardware and also people who care about like website performance. Um, and so the, the people I was talking to there were people who were, um, who were awash in data but maybe don't quite know what to make of it or how to look at it in the most effective ways. Um, and so there's a talk I gave called Look at Your Data and then there's another one I, I gave called um, Investigating Anomalies. Uh, th that are about um, the fact that um, that if you if you have a real data set, um, usually something really interesting is happening out in the tails. Um, in particular, that's true um, in an in in like a website operational context. Um, the 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 argument I make in that talk is that. Um, that what's happening in the tail of, say, website latency um, is that your service is probably failing in some way. It's just not failing very often yet. Um, and it's going to start to fail more as whatever, whatever part of the infrastructure gets under more and more stress as your traffic grows. Um, and you can figure that out now, uh, like when, it's, uh, when you have a cup of coffee and it's 11 in the morning, uh, or you can figure it out at 3 in the morning uh, when your pager went off and you're really sad about things. Um, I don't know. And that talk, that was a fun talk because I, I, I went through the, the, the Jon Snow um, cholera map and talked about um, uh, how he investigated um, the, the, that particular outbreak. And I also covered a bunch of ground before about uh, the, the work that he, it turns out that, that, I don't know if people know the cholera map or even maybe I should tell that story, I don't know. Uh, so for a long time, people didn't know about the germ theory of disease. They thought that disease was uh, due to bad airs or miasma, they called it. Um, uh, and the main reason is because they hadn't developed powerful microscopes yet. Uh, so they couldn't see uh, that there were uh, little bugs in the water that were causing disease. Um, and so Snow was a, was a proponent of, or well, he, he wanted to understand cholera, really. That was the big deal. Cholera was this horrible disease that killed um, lots and lots of people um, in his day. Uh, and he had a theory that it was, it was waterborne. And so he actually started out doing this analysis of uh, where different parts of uh, London got their water and what, were the, the, what was the prevalence of cholera in different parts of London. So this sort of historical analysis um, over, a, over a long span of time, like a year or more. Um, and so I cover that material. And so he had published that and, and, and people, uh, the, the medical profession at the time found it utterly unconvincing. They're like, well, there's this no evidence here, right? There's, um, the, this is uh, you know, simple correlation. Uh, you, know, you haven't made a causal argument, which is true. Uh, but as Tufty says, right? Correlation is not causation, but it sure is a hint. Um, so, uh, so then there was this famous outbreak of cholera. Uh, I don't remember the dates anymore. Um, and what Snow did is he went around and he interviewed people um, uh, uh, at, well, actually, first he got the death statistics. He went to the, to the 
I don't know, the coroner's office, and he, he figured out where, what are all the addresses where people died? And then he went around and he interviewed people uh, and he asked them, well, like, where do you get your water? All this sort of stuff. Um, and, and he ended up making this map um, that showed that the that the outbreak was centered around a pump uh, on Broad Street, so the the, so the famous Broad Street pump. Um, but then there were these weird outliers. So it turns out that nearby the pump, there was a building where nobody got sick at all. Well, that building was a brewery, uh, and the brewers were allowed to drink beer. Uh, and so they didn't, and it also had a private piped in water supply from someplace else. Uh, and so the brewers never drank the, the water from the Broad Street pump. And then there was a, there was a woman who lived far away, who used to live on Broad Street and really liked the flavor of the water from the Broad Street pump. And so her, her sons helpfully brought her uh, a jar of water from the pump once a week. She drank the water and died, and it was the only case of cholera anywhere near her uh, uh, that was reported in that time frame. And so there are these, these little outliers that give you tremendous, uh, uh, that, that, that really develop your confidence in your model, um, if you can understand and explain the outliers. That was the that was the the case that I was making um, in that talk. Um, I don't know. That, <laughs> did that make sense? Was that a was that a helpful rundown? Yeah, that, that's an extremely helpful rundown. And uh, yeah, I, I knew uh, a little bit uh, about that uh, that cholera map, but there was a ton of details there that I didn't know. So that's that's super fascinating. I appreciate you sharing it. Sure. Um, and that uh, that conference, that Velocity conference about people managing uh, large fleets of hardware uh, dovetails well with where I, I wanted to go next, actually. So one of the places that we, we haven't spoken much about yet, uh, but I think is super fascinating, is Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, I know you worked uh, on different projects there, both in and out of, of AWS, but maybe just to, to start off, like, what... What did success look like for you or, or your team, and how, how was that set up? Wow. So I worked, I did a bunch of different things at Amazon. Uh, I started out in the personalization group, uh, and I worked on, um, there is a system at Amazon that optimizes the content that was shown on the, the Amazon homepage. Like if you just go to Amazon.com, um, it would choose what to show you. Um, in real time. So that was the very first thing I worked on. For a while, I worked on infrastructure. Um, I did, like, I worked on all these different things, and so it's really hard to say what success is over that span. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I have something I, like I could say. It's not really an answer to your question, but, um, but well, maybe it is. I don't know. I'll give you an answer, and you can tell me if you don't like it, and I'll, I'll try again. <laughs> so um, uh, Amazon is a, is a fantastically analytically rigorous place. I will probably never in my career work anywhere that has the level of analytical rigor that Amazon does. And so what success looks like at Amazon for someone like me and really for almost anyone who works at Amazon um, is if you can make um, really compelling evidence-based arguments, in particular in writing. Um, that's success. Like if you can if you can get your ideas um, into other people's heads in written form, uh, that's generally success. 
Um, I mean, I don't know, like a, like a, I guess a pat ant. No, sorry, I've had a, a few moments to think about it. A pat answer to your question uh, in general at Amazon is free cash flow. Optimize for free cash flow. That's like the Amazon mantra. Um, Jeff will talk about free cash flow. All, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, will talk about free cash flow all the time. Um, but I don't know. Is that is that helpful at all? Is that like even remotely an answer to your question? Oh, it totally is. And, and I, I think that... Uh the point about analytical rigor and the point about conveying those ideas in writing uh, are super fascinating. I, I'm w- when you think about what makes Amazon, you know, probably the most analytical, analytically rigorous place you've worked and that you probably ever will work. Are, are there any examples you can think of or like norms that that really illustrate that? Like things that happen in Amazon that would never happen somewhere else, or vice versa. Sure. I mean, like the the first thing that comes to mind is what is called the the six page narrative at Amazon. So um, uh, this is maybe a little bit known out in the world. It's been written about in in the in the um, business press, uh, but but I don't know that it's that well known outside of Amazon alumni. Um, so so it turns out that at Amazon. In particular, at the very highest levels of Amazon. So, if you're if you're going to have a meeting with Jeff, um, the way that works is that you write a six-page paper. Um, everybody comes into the room. You hand out um, hard copies of that paper. Everybody sits and reads silently for a while, usually fifteen or twenty minutes, and then people have a discussion. Um, there is never a PowerPoint in a high-level meeting at Amazon. It it simply never happens. Uh, and the reason for that is that you can't hide sloppy thinking in writing. Um, but that actually, there's like a Lamport quote that writing is God's way of showing you how sloppy your thinking is, or something like that. I think that's Leslie Lamport. Uh, I, I might be getting that wrong. Um, but it's it's totally true that that with verbal communication or with PowerPoint, your 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 writing or your thinking can be really really bad um, and you can still convince yourself and your audience that it totally makes sense um, and that is not true in written form not in my experience and I've written a lot like I've worked at Amazon for a long time and I've written papers for Jeff um, so that's the norm I think that above all else leads to analytical rigor um, at Amazon uh, do you know why it's six pages and not five or seven uh, I think Jeff just decided once, uh, like, and and so he just picked a number, um, right? Like, it can't be too long. It, it turns out that almost always what people do um, at Amazon is they write six pages, and then there's like supplemental material. There are like appendices and like an FAQ and all kinds of other things. Usually, um, uh, so that I mean, because it's really it's fantastically difficult to distill. Uh, any topic that is being discussed at that level into six coherent pages, because you just have to leave a bunch behind, right? You, you, you just have to pick like what is the most important stuff for this audience, which is great. That's, I mean, that's exactly what you should be doing. Um, but it's so painful um, to leave all of that other material behind. So people like they actually hand out thirty pages, and it's like nobody. I mean, actually, Jeff Jeff will always look through all of your appendices. He won't read them, but he'll look. He'll flip through them and look at the pictures and like skim. Um, so yeah, anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why the six pages, but but it's 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 just the rule. It's, it's someone decided at some point, and that's what it is. Yeah, and I've actually I've written a couple letters uh, for our board of directors, and 
you know, typically between five and ten pages long, and I'm writing another one right now. So I'm thinking maybe I maybe I ought to make this one exactly six. Uh, so <laughs> useful takeaway from this conversation. Uh, is it ever actually shorter than six? Oh, sure. Not very often, though. Normally, people are like playing with margins and fonts in order to like squeeze like an extra paragraph in. Uh, but I'm sure sometimes it's less than six. I've never written one that's less than six. Um, uh, so, and I know you mentioned, you know, obviously the the end goal of everything there is to you know optimize free cash flow, which you know to some extent that is the same with all businesses. Uh, I'm sure that you had uh, proxy variables that, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you were judging your your success by whether, you know, personalization, I'm sure it was click-through rates, or when you were at AWS, it was uptime or, or something like that. Um, I guess, yeah, maybe we'll take the, the, the time that you were at AWS. Like, what, what were the, the specific things that you were optimizing and tracking on a day-to-day basis? I mean, so the time I was at AWS, I mostly worked in AWS infrastructure. Uh, and the thing that we cared a lot about was efficiency, um, like how to make um, data centers uh, energy efficient um, and have high uptime and have low um, what, what we called blast radius, that basically when a component failed, um, how could it have the smallest possible impact on the least number of customers? Because um, equipment fails all the time, right? Like, like if, if I count to five, there's like, there are 18 computers that have something horrible has happened to in AWS data centers. Uh, I mean, I made that number up, but you know what I you know what I mean. Um, uh, and so, what you want is to is to isolate the the impact of that. So, um, like so the so if a computer fails, well, that's fine. It usually doesn't affect that many people. But if say the switch at the top of a rack of computers fails, well, now all those computers don't have network connectivity, and maybe that's sad. And like if a core router fails, and depending on your network topology, like now maybe like a lot of users are having a bad day. Um, and so we, we worked really, really hard um, to absolutely minimize the, the impact from the failure of any individual component. And, and it sounds like it would be such a multidisciplinary uh, endeavor, just because you, know, you have the networking layer, the hardware layer, the software layer. Uh, how, like, how was that team structured that was working on that problem? Um, I mean, there was, there was a, a team of people that were um, I mean, essentially mechanical engineers uh, or like industrial, in, well, mechanical engineers as much as anything else that were involved in building the physical plant. So the cooling systems, the electrical systems, designing all of that. Um, another team of engineers that was doing um, hardware design for the computers, um, a set of network engineers, a set of kernel and operating systems engineers. Um, uh, people that did um, like supply chain management because you're buying that com- many computers, right? Like that's a whole separate part of the problem. It's not really, I guess, focused so much on the other stuff I was talking about. I mean, so there were just teams that were focused around subject matter expertise. I mean, I guess it's exactly as you would expect. I don't think there's anything surprising there. I don't know. I'm sorry, it's kind of a boring answer. No, I, I think it's interesting. And I, I guess the, the other aspect I'm curious of, so uh, like we're uh, your specific role there, were you um, like were you integrated with one of those teams or was there a, a data science and analytics team that, that sat separately that just, you know, uh, occasionally interfaced with them? Like how, I guess I'm getting back to the, you know, there's always the question of is data science and analytics a monolithic group or is it embedded in other teams? Like how, how did that uh, structure work? 
Yeah, so I'm kind of a weird cat in that way, in that um, throughout most of my career, uh, and even to this day, I've always been kind of a lone wolf. And my time at Amazon, so I guess it really begins with my time at Amazon. So that's, that's I guess, when I really... Like when I joined Amazon in 2003, I, I was hired as a software engineer, but almost instantly I was doing work that would have been called data science at the time. Um, and it turns out that I enjoy and I'm good at um, answering questions with data, that, that a lot of what I do is just listen to people uh, and try to figure out what it is that is making them worried about the business. And then um, I go off and try to figure out ways that I can answer their questions or I can reduce their uncertainty. Um, and so um, I've, throughout most of my career, I've done that as just a solo effort um, that, uh, and, and, um, so to answer your very specific question, so at, at uh, when I worked at AWS, I reported to the vice president for infrastructure. Um, uh, so uh, I was just on his team uh, as a as an individual contributor. So he he had a bunch of directors that reported to him, and then there was me. Uh, and um, and so I would just wander around and try to find what seemed like the most interesting problem. Uh, and, and really do that thing that, that I was talking about. Like I would, I would go to all of his staff meetings and I would just listen, like what is it that they're worried about? Like how can I help them execute more effectively? How can I help their teams be better? Um, how can I um, uh, bring data to bear on their questions? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's so I, I, there was no team. It was just me. I was a lone wolf. <laughs> and, and I guess I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, the, the data analysis aspect of AWS infrastructure, because I'm, I'm assuming that you can't run an A-B test on designing a data center because, you know, I, well, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe they're doing it at a scale where you actually can do it. But but how would you actually go about analyzing the outcomes and, and coming to those conclusions? I mean, most of that work was around, um, like, optimizing for uptime. It's, I mean, you can't, like, when it comes to, like, building the physical plant, you're right. Like, you can't. I mean, it turns out if you're going to spend, uh, I don't even know what one of them cost, millions of dollars, I'm sure, many, many millions of dollars. Um, uh, right, like you can't you can't do tests. You can do tests on the individual components, and we did sometimes. Um, like we would take uh, pieces of equipment out of service um, and subject them to bad treatment, <laughs> and then try to figure out like how did they perform? Like, and does does this um, does this version of the hardware do better than that version um, in dealing with say um, power fluctuations or something like that? So you can do like really um, straight ahead small scale statistics. Um, like it's 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 the kind of design of experiments that you learn in like statistics three hundred one. I'm sure. Um, I've never taken Statistics 301. Um, uh, so, so it wasn't really A-B testing. It was, uh, uh, and certainly not of the physical plant. Um, uh, a lot of it was more, I mean, like the, the work that I did at the, at the end, and I can talk about this because we patented it, so it's all disclosed, um, was to try to understand um, 
network failures, um, like how the, you have these these routers basically that are that are connecting um, racks um, throughout data centers, and then um, that are connecting data centers to other data centers and to the internet. Um, well, those things there's lots of them, and they fail. Um, and sometimes they fail only partly. They'll fail in a probabilistic way, so they'll drop some packets, so they'll drop packets only in one direction. Um, and those are the those are the most difficult failures to diagnose. If if a router just blows up and stops transmitting traffic, like that's fine. Um, but if it if it um, uh, transmits ninety nine percent of its traffic and drops one percent, uh, or like slows down one percent, like that's really really painful. And so, um, I I worked on a system that would analyze network flows uh, and um, try to pinpoint. Uh, uh, hardware that was failing probabilistically, um, and the and there I was just I mean there I was just trying to fit the data right like um, like I would I mean that was that was my my quality and then and then I had actual like I had the the equivalent of a marked data set um, like I could uh, I could go and find where a network engineer had actually decommissioned a router uh, and so okay that was the bad one like can I recover that information um, that kind of thing. Interesting, huh? Uh, yeah, it's, it's very cool, and I, I can just only imagine that, like, at the level of scale they're operating at, that it, it you know, uh, impacting, you know, uh, uh, reducing the number of customers that are impacted by a kind of machine that goes down a lot, you know, can I'm sure generate uh, insane savings and, and revenue additions. Yeah, I mean, we what Amazon people would say is uh, is that it can dramatically improve the customer experience. Right, like that's what it's. Amazon is a is a explicitly customer obsessed company, um, right? Now it, it turns out that that you get more customers, uh, and 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 your customers are happier um, if things cost less. Um, uh, so it's a it's a virtuous cycle. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you mentioned that you tended to be uh, a lone wolf, and and especially you know in this this work at Amazon, you were. Were there uh, are there any other points at your career when you were part of a more explicit um, you know, either data science or, or analytics team. Yeah, so my time at Pinterest, for example, um, that there was a um, a data science team that I was a part of. There was um, started out with essentially three people, um, and then grew to sort of a combined business analytics and data science team that was oh, maybe ten people when I left Pinterest, something like that. Got it. And so that team. They they were you know all explicitly reporting to the head of analytics rather than being embedded in either the product or, or any other group. Yeah, that's right. There was a a woman who was the head of business analytics, and so we all reported into her. Um, we've always I've always been curious. I mean, I, I, I like you, am interested in this question of like, well, do you do the the sort of matrix embedded model or do you do the monolithic team model? Um, I've never tried the embedded model. I've always thought it would be interesting, though. Um, potentially difficult to pull off, right? Like it seems also complicated, right? The 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 issues of how do you how do you move people around and on what cadence and how do you maintain um, coherence uh, uh, on like say coherence of effort on a particular project or something like that as people are rolling onto and off of teams. So I don't know. It's not uh, not obvious to me how to solve all those problems. Yeah, it seems like there's. Uh there's a number, there's a set of things that people, uh, you know, look to get from their management or from their, you know, corporate division. And, you know, there's setting priorities and there's feedback and there's, you know, hiring and firing and compensation and, and all, all those different things. And 
you know, it's just in some of these cases, it's just like, you know, you, you need different things from different groups. So it's, it's in some ways it's semantics, but in some ways it's just, it's going to be better if we just have everything from everybody, even if it's uh, from one particular person rather than the other, even if it's locally not optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And, and I, I'm curious, are there any particular projects that you worked on at, at Pinterest or, or just a category of, of work that you did that, that might be interesting to, to tell people about? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the work... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a couple of different things. I mean, one uh, one thing that I was actually really enjoyable to me was uh, work. I did I did work to build a seasonal model for Pinterest um, usage, um, which was really helpful uh, in in understanding business metrics. Right, Pinterest is a really young company, and so when I started, there wasn't um, I mean, there wasn't hardly much data at all. Um, and then after a couple of years, like finally we had enough data that we could start to see like year over year, like what's going on and like, why, why does growth, um, accelerate at this time of year and, um, decelerate at this other time of year. Uh, so that was fun. And it was fun just because I got to learn a lot about time series techniques. Like I had done none, I had done no work at all on time series, um, uh, uh, stuff like econometrics work. Uh, and so I got to learn a lot, which was really cool. And then I guess the work that I think I'm most proud of um, uh, and that is the most generally applicable is the work that we did around A-B testing at Pinterest, and in particular about building a culture around testing. Um, the, it, it turns out that the technical aspects of scaling A-B testing in an organization are really boring and easy, uh, but the the but scaling the human side of A-B testing so that people can actually run tests confidently and accurately and interpret them correctly is fantastically difficult, um, much, much harder than, than the technical aspect. Uh, and so that's, I guess, another thing from Pinterest that was interesting. And how did you go about uh, tackling that challenge of, of uh, embedding that in the culture and uh, educating people on how to interpret it? Um, yeah, so... Uh, so my colleague, uh, and so I can only claim partial credit for this. The, the, the person who really drove this the most was a, a woman named Andrea Burbank. Um, uh, and she's given a couple of talks about it that if people are really interesting, interested in, um, if they Google um, Andrea Burbank, uh, spelled exactly as you would expect, and Pinterest or, or experimentation, you can go watch her talks. But the, the nutshell version is... Um, what we did is we built this program we called Experiments Help. Um, so, uh, so there was at the beginning there was Andrea, um, like she built the the A/B testing framework, uh, and she had her hands on every single test that was done at Pinterest. Uh, and then Pinterest started to run more and more and more tests, uh, and so it basically there was just no way that she could help with every test uh, and and have a sane life. Um, and so uh, we, what, we've, what we decided to do is to build this program where we would train other people um, to, 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 to basically to be Andrea, <laughs> to be the experiment experts. Um, and so it started out with, with um, uh, Andrea and me and another fellow. Um, and what we did is we took one week rotations where uh, we would be Andrea for the week. Uh, and and um, and so what what that meant is that what is um, every experiment that was going out, we would review that experiment, and we developed a set of checklists 
um, where we like at Pinterest, the culture was you had to write an experiment document that explained before you ran your experiment, like what the heck was the experiment and what do the screenshots look like and what do you expect to happen? And like, how big is your population? You know, all the sort of basic stuff that no one will do if you don't force them to. Uh, But it turns out it's incredibly important if you want to learn anything over the long term. Right. People are always. shorting their future selves in that uh, regard. Uh, so so checklist, like, did they write a document? Uh, we would review the code um, and, and verify that the code actually does what the document said. Um, uh, and then um, we, the, at Pinterest, there was a very strong culture of code review. Um, uh, so you, no one would ever ship code without getting it reviewed. Uh, uh, and so we did the same thing with experiment review. Um, that, that basically whenever some, someone was going to ship an experiment, there was always a code change involved in shipping an experiment because, I mean, that's what you're doing is you're changing the Pinterest uh, website or service in some way. Uh, and so um, uh, the, the, basically any experiment that went out would get an experiment review by a certified experiment helper. So at the beginning, one of the three of us. Um, and so we'd run through the checklists um, uh, and verify that people were doing things well and were, and were, um, were not... Um, making the kinds of mistakes that are that are so so easy to make that will spoil an experiment um, uh, forever, right? Like you can contaminate your experiment permanently, essentially, if you just screw up and expose like expose the entire population to the treatment. Oops! Well, now the game's over, um, right? Uh, and so, uh, uh, so so we did that for a while, and then what we started to do is to deputize um, people. So we chose, very carefully chose people that we thought were really competent um, software engineers, so people who didn't have any particular statistics background or training. And, and we, we put them through an apprenticeship program where they would be the on-call experiment helper uh, for a week. Uh, and, and, um, and they would be on the firing line. They, like, they would have to say, like, yes or no, like, this is a good experiment or a bad one, and it's implemented correctly or it's not, or the way that you're interpreting this is right or it's not. Um, which is is really uh, is 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 difficult when you're beginning, right? Um, but it, but the only way to acquire practical skill um, is to actually exercise the skill itself. And so um, so that was we developed this apprenticeship program, um, and over time we got more and more of these little deputies all throughout the company. So every team had a certified experiment helper um, on their team. Uh, and then, um, the, and then after a while, we got to the point where the the helpers were training other helpers, um, and uh, and so this the basically the, the the system ran itself. It was a perpetual motion machine, uh, and it's as far as I know, it's still going. I'm not there anymore. So <laughs> anyway, so that was uh, sorry that was a long winded answer, but that was basically like what we did. It sounds like a very uh, it sounds like a smart way to tackle the problem, and it seems like it was successful. Uh, so you went from one person running the experiments to three people running the experiments. Like how, uh, what did that scale to by the time you left? Oh, it had to be like 20 or 30, maybe. Uh, I don't, I don't actually, I'm, I, it's funny for someone who does what I do. I have an absolutely horrible memory for numbers. (laughs) Numbers fall out of my head as fast as they come in. I can't, I I just, I, I can't remember numbers. And so I don't know. It's thirty is about right. Um, supporting a, a, an organization of I don't know six or seven hundred people, probably half of them engineers. That's great. Yeah, anything that can get a uh, twenty to thirty x increase in your uh, experiment running bandwidth 
is uh, got to be considered pretty successful. Yeah, I mean, what I was so pleased with is that we found a way to scale ourselves, right? Um, it's really easy for the people with um, statistics knowledge to be a bottleneck and to get in the way um, or to always be saying, no, 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 right? Like that was, that was, in fact, a lot of our job for a very long time is to tell people the bad news about how they screwed up their experiment. And we just got sick of that. And we're like, we have to stop. Like we have to find a way to stop people from making the mistakes before they make them. All right. Um, I mean, and, and that's part of that was also our fault. Like the tooling wasn't great. Like and so a lot of our work was also to improve the tooling and to make to like make the, the, the APIs to the experiment service incredibly narrow and well-defined so that it was harder to make mistakes in code um, and that the only mistakes left were the, the mistakes in, in say, the, the analytical or statistical thinking around the experiment. So the code was trivial at least. Um, Anyway, but yeah, so the, the, the big thing was, was finding a way to scale ourselves, which is, which is rare and, and really enjoyable when you can do it. Absolutely, yeah. It sounds like it would be incredibly rewarding. Um, is there anything that you want to plug or, or flag for, for listeners that you think they might want to check out, whether it's a, a product or a service or a, a job posting or, or anything like that? Um, I mean, the only thing I've got coming up is, uh, is I'm giving another talk at Velocity, actually, in, in um, two weeks or so. It's the November 8th, Velocity. If you're in Amsterdam and you want to go to see a, a conference um, uh, about web operations uh, and, and, and uh, web performance, uh, I'm giving a talk about um, uh, the, the title of the talk is How Humans See Data. Um, so the idea is to apply basic research um, from psychology, from human psychology, uh, to statistical graphics, uh, like that's that's the the main the main thing. So that'll be out. I'll put that up on my YouTube channel at some point in the future, probably three four months before I finally get my hands on it. And uh, uh, when you say statistical graphics, do you mean basically data visualizations, or, or is that uh, more specific than that? Oh, just you no know, charts, like okay. like uh, yeah. Things with an X and a Y axis most of the time. I don't do. I don't typically do what people call data viz, right? Like whizzy, like really snazzy graphics. Um, I just make charts. <laughs> I don't know. It's yet another thing that goes like another simple hundreds of years old technology that will get you a very very long way. Yeah, it uh, charts can be very powerful. <laughs> Uh, cool. And uh, where uh, else can people learn more about you or, or anything that you think uh, they ought to know about, either you know, your Twitter handle, personal website, anything like that? Um, yeah. I mean, you can find me on, actually, you can find me on just about any service as J Rouser, J-R-A-U-S-E-R, not least Twitter. Um, uh, and I do have, uh, I have a blog and I'm embarrassed I can't remember the exact URL I, I post to it very rarely it's the fractionating column I think it's at blogspot it's just, this is funny I'm now I'm gonna type where where is it fractionating column blog a fractionating column is a piece of distillation equipment so if you just google for fractionating column you won't find it um, but uh, you haven't won that SEO battle yet? No. Oh, it's just fractionatingcolumn.com. No, thefractionatingcolumn.com. I bought the domain. Anyway, I, there are like only three posts there, two posts. Uh, but, well, there you go. That's my personal blog. A post about, uh, about writing and another post about presenting. Um, so those are long things I wrote. 
Awesome. Well, John, this conversation has been uh, super interesting. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for the time. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at Stitch HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Center City, Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Jake Stein, access old episodes at statisticallyinteresting.com and find out more about Stitch at stitchdata.com. 